You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Okay, uh, hello there, David. How are you? Fine, thanks, Glenn. Good to meet you at last. All right, it's very good to meet you too. I am Glenn Lowry. This is The Glenn Show at bloggingheads.tv. I'm a professor at Brown of Economics and of International and Public Affairs. And the Watson Institute at Brown University uh, sponsors The Glenn Show. So I'm with uh, Professor David Kaiser, who is an historian. David, do you want to introduce yourself further? Yes, thanks, Glenn. Uh, I am a historian, um, principally, although not exclusively, uh, an historian of international politics and international relations. I've written a number of books about the origins of wars. Uh, I taught um, at a number of institutions from 1976 uh, through uh, 2013, uh, first for four years at Harvard, then for 10 years at Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh, then for uh, more than 20 years at the Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island. And then late in that 20-year period, I had the good fortune to be a visiting professor at Williams College for two separate years. And uh, last year, I published my autobiography, A Life in History, which was the story of my education and my career, and also a commentary on the changes that had taken place in the historical profession in general in the course of my career and the effects that those changes have had, which I think have been in many ways very unfortunate. That's really what I wanted to talk to you about. You were kind enough to have your publisher send me a copy of uh, A Life in History, your uh, memoir, um, and autobiography, and um, I read it with great interest. Um, so, you know, you and I, as you were pointing out before we started recording, are roughly of the same cohort. Uh, I noticed that in reading uh, the book. You know, I was I was a graduate student at uh, MIT in the early 1970s, and I was a young professor at Harvard in the early 1980s, and we were overlapping there in Cambridge, Massachusetts, without knowing each other. And it's been a while, David. <laughs> it's been 40 years or 45 years since then. So, you know, I could tell my own story, but you're the guest here. Uh, how'd you get into history? What was history when you began uh, the profession, and, and what has it become? Well, as I described in the first chapter of the book, I got into it at a very uh, as a very young child uh, with the help of a wonderful series of children's books that were very popular when you and I were kids, Landmark Books. Uh, I, I wonder, did you discover Landmark Books when you were a kid? I did not. Okay. Well, they really were quite sophisticated works of history. Uh, and the first one I read in second grade was actually about the Monitor and the Merrimack and the Civil War at Sea. And, and I got hooked. I read a lot more of those, uh, as I described in the book, uh, when I was, uh, 10, I guess, uh, in, uh, fifth grade. Uh, there was a big blizzard in Albany, New York when I was living then. We had a week off from school and I actually wrote a concise history of the United States. At the age of the 10? At the age of 10, yes, and I still have it. I talked about that in the book. Now I'm doing this again. I'm writing my second concise history of the United States. Can I just uh, remark? Can I just sure. remark that not only were sure. you precocious as an author, but you were an archivist as well. If you still have what you wrote when you were ten yes. years old, that's yeah. an amazing fact. <laughs> right. Well, I, I may owe that to my mother, who was an archivist too, particularly about anything relating to her, her kids, and, and she never threw out anything. And I, I think I found it again in her papers. I didn't keep I it see. all that time. So I owe her thanks for that. But anyway, um, and also, I mean, my father was a public servant. He was in government. Um, his career depended from quite an early stage on the whims of the American electorate. So what was going on in the big world, elections, the future of the Democratic Party, all that uh, was very much in the air in, in my household. And that gave me a head start, too. And then when I was 14, he became an ambassador in West Africa, and we went there for a couple of years. And that gave my intellectual development a, a new direction. But anyway, uh, when I got to college in 1965, you were at Harvard. It was at Harvard. It was at Harvard. Yes. History was thriving. Um, this is one of the things I looked up for the book in the previous spring in, in 1965, Harvard and Wright flipped together 
which were the same institution academically already, had graduated 270 history majors. Uh, now they're graduating about 45 history majors a year. Uh, and maybe we'll get to that. And history was about the, the, principally, it was about many things, but the focus was on the development of modern states in the context of Western civilization, but not only Western civilization, because the Western model was already spreading around the world. Uh, it, it was about the development of democracy, the growth of modern governments. It was about the relations among those states uh, in war and in peace, which became my specialty as a graduate student. Um, and it, it was certainly mixed up with an idea of progress and also very much of competing political systems. Since the era of fascism was just over, this is the era of the Cold War, we were competing against the communists, uh, etc. And actually, uh, it was interesting, not only was the history department focused on that, but the government department at Harvard at that time, um, what is in most schools, the political science department, was, among other things, an alternative history department in that it had a distinguished scholar uh, on the government of just about every major state in the world, uh, China, Japan, France, Russia, uh, England, very distinguished people who knew the history of those countries just as well as the historians did. And, and that was another resource that I was able to draw on. Um, so uh, if you were interested in politics, in origins of wars, in also how states try to influence their economies, uh, that was a great place to be uh, and a great time to be alive. Let, let me just ask you, um, you say Western uh, and state focused. Is there no tradition of historiography in the Eastern, you know, East Asian or South Asian uh, intellectual or in the Islamic world going back to the Middle Ages? Is there no historiography in those civilizations? I'm sure that there is, uh, indeed, uh, and certainly in the Far East. Uh, uh, but I, I'm not really qualified to discuss it, I have to admit. But I'm quite sure that there is. Yes. And, and certainly the, the cycle of dynasties in China, I believe, has been the focus of their history forever. Yeah. Okay, but so when you were coming along, it was uh, it was focused largely on European state uh, inner uh, state dynamics and uh, very granular in terms of uh, people's knowledge about the specific historical uh, you know development in the in the different major uh, countries. Yes, uh, European states, European revolutions. There was a tremendous amount of scholarship going on in those days still about the French Revolution and also. Um, about the Nazi revolution in Germany. Uh, and the two leading centers for that were in West Germany and in the United States. And I got very exposed to that as well. And there was a lot being written about the Russian revolution. Sure. Okay. Uh, yep. So, no, I want you to go on with the account. I mean, you're, this is history okay. as you were coming along. Uh, and uh, evidently you're contrasting that with, with something and, you know. Yes. Um, I think we really were, Glenn, when we were in college, although we didn't know it, at a pivotal moment in, in Western intellectual history and, and in Western history in general, because I think we were living through the climax of the last two centuries uh, of the development of the Enlightenment and its impact not only in universities and on intellectual life and in disciplines like history, but its impact on politics and on life. Now, as you remember, and as you know, and you and I have been living with the consequences of this ever since, a lot of our generation in college rebelled against the existing order at that very moment in the late 60s. And a lot of that was triggered by our parents' catastrophic mistake, the Vietnam War. I, I think, probably can't get into this now, it's, it's very complicated. I, there's a good deal of reason, to, I, I think now there's a good deal of reason to think it would have happened anyway, even without the Vietnam War. Although that certainly made it more intense and, and more immediate and, and more profound. So that 
they persuaded themselves that a lot of what our parents had told us, our parents' generation had told us, was not true. Um, not only that it was a good idea to fight the Vietnam War, but that our civilization was fundamentally just, that we were all, all the good guys. And the focus began among our contemporaries on what was wrong with our nation, with our civilization, and on the people who seemed to have been excluded from it, people who hadn't done so well out of it, that included minorities. Um, it, it also led to more influence, emphasis on the third world and what was happening there. And perhaps the biggest uh, change came from feminism and the idea that became more and more popular among feminists, really that the Enlightenment and Western civilization were largely a conspiracy against women. Um, and, and that the whole view of history that came out of those things, uh, was a way to shore up patriarchy. And from that, uh, came the view, which was very new, that your perceptions as a historian, or as almost anything else for that matter, were largely shaped by your demographic. And that therefore, uh, we needed to emphasize work by new demographics because they would have insights by their very nature, uh, that white males had ignored or tried to suppress or whatever. And, and, and that idea, uh, I think, had become mainstream by the 1990s or so and continues to be mainstream in history departments around the country even today. And the result uh, is, uh, well, let me put it this way. All this was justified at the beginning as filling in the gaps in other words, we've been too focused on government. We've been too focused on the white males who ran it. We haven't looked at, at the marginalized groups, the outside groups, and at what all these developments meant for them. And there was some truth in that. And certainly there was a lot of important work to be done there. But uh, now, and in the last 20 or 30 years, it has gone to the point where what governments do is almost ignored by the historical profession. You see that every year in the program of the HA, in, in the panels they do, where there are only a handful of panels that claim to be devoted to political history. And then if you look at the actual content of the panels, the definition of political history is very broad. And, and you will really struggle to find any panels that, that deal with what governments did or electoral politics or anything like that. And thus, we, we have generations that are really quite ignorant about those topics. Okay, let, let me interrupt for a moment sure. and, and see if I can't formulate a coherent question or two. Uh, I'm not a historian. I think that needs to be stipulated. Um, I can hear uh, the objections uh, even as we speak. Uh, you, uh, David Kaiser, are an old white man uh, with respect, okay, with respect. <laughs> You're right, uh, and, I know. I, I say that with trepidation since you and I are roughly the same age, so that makes me an old black man. Uh, but uh, colonialism, the European appropriation of the world uh, over a series of centuries, and then the justification of it, the rationalization of the dominance, the expropriation of the labor and the, uh, the uh, raw materials and the product, uh, the, the, the power dynamic that was entailed in that, uh, is, uh, deserving of critique. And the old guard, uh, establishment, uh, historian, um, historical profession, uh, uh, didn't see, uh, the, uh, these events in nearly the, with the same eye, uh, as with those, uh, who would be telling the story from below. Um, History in the service of state power, not history in the service of uh, of, uh, uh, of emancipation and uh, so on. And the women would be saying this from a feminist point of view, people of color, quote unquote, and post-colonial populations would be saying it from their point of view. Um, and uh, what happened when uh, people who look like me, this is how this argument is going to go, uh, started yeah. writing history. Uh, they had different interests, and they were asking different questions, questions that were uh, every bit as uh, vital, uh, but uh, were overlooked. Um, and this is just a lament, what I'm hearing from you right now. This is just a kind of, you lost the culture war 
uh, and uh, now you know you're. This is sour grapes. Thank you for very ably stating the opposing view, uh, Glenn. I hope so. I tried, and uh, you did. And let me respond. Uh, there, there, there are several things I want to say to that. Uh, the first thing I want to say is that you can spend your life writing about state power without idealizing state power or excusing state power um, or, or, or championing any particular nation, uh, any particular people, etc. You can regard state power as a necessity and as something that has shaped the world and is therefore deserving of study, even though it often goes terribly wrong. And uh, several of my books, most notably American Tragedy, Kennedy Johnson and the Origins of the Vietnam War, have been about state power going wrong in catastrophic ways, as were many of the much older books going all the way back to Thucydides, uh, which is the, the tragic story of, of how Athens went wrong. So that's number one. You don't necessarily idealize what you write about. And, and, and the, the great historians have never done that. They have been alive to both what is good and what is evil. And I think that awareness is what makes great history. Now, of course, colonialism, imperialism were very cruel in many ways. They appear to reflect, sad to say, powerful elements in human nature. I say that because we find those things on every continent in every era of history that we know of. The story of the expansion of one civilization, ethnic group, linguistic group, whatever, at the expense of another, uh, is largely the story of history for, for most of the early centuries that we know about. And again, one can argue that while this has certainly con- continued over the last few centuries, what is different about the last few centuries is that we have developed norms that reject those things. We don't always observe those norms, no, but we have them. And we've, we've developed certain kinds of international legal codes, which are supposed to ensure the respect of the sovereignty of nations uh, and allow them to live together in peace and so on. And again, this has been a great experiment, which certainly hasn't always worked out well, but we've been trying. And the other point I always like to make to people who state the kind of view that you did is that whatever you think about the Western model, it did spread virtually over the entire world and not merely through oppression. Um, Japan, for instance, in, in the 1860s, after the first contact with the West and, and the superior military or naval power of the West at that point, the Japanese leadership very consciously decided if we're going to compete in this world, we're going to have to pick up some things from the West. And again, I learned this in the government course at Harvard, taught by Edmund Reischauer, then the ambassador to Japan, and had a Japanese wife, really knew the culture. They sent Japanese scholars all over the world um, to, to pick up things about the Western constitutions, Western armies, Western navies to, to use them for themselves. Um, and a lot of the institutions of the West were spread by colonialism, but by some of them by imitation. Actually, I would say that one of the other great dramas in history that we have lived through is that the, the, the hegemony of the West and Western ideas, uh, I think, really peaked around the middle of the last century. And, and the Islamic Revolution in Iran, for instance, in 1979, which was such an astonishing event for the West, uh, was the beginning of something big and uh, a, a resurgence of, of other kinds of values based largely on religion. But, of course, as you and I know, uh, the, the West, this is what we're talking about, the Western tradition has been very much under attack in, in Western universities um, as well. So... Those are the main ways that, that I would answer that. Um, and, but the other big thing I would say, okay, the West developed the values of equality, universal rights, etc. The new historians have pointed out correctly 
that the application of those values was pretty uneven as, as regards non-whites, as regards women, uh, et cetera, and, and even as, as regards gays. Uh, that's true. And it's been an important theme in the United States history that, that we have tried gradually and not always fully successfully to, to make them more generally applicable. But the other bottom line for me about all that is that without those universal values as a guideline, we are lost. And it, uh, it is very dangerous for all of us to, to, to undermine them by, ob- by arguing that they have always been hypocritical, that they have always been the cover for the oppression of one group. Uh, whatever truth there is in that, um, and, and there is a little, uh, in application, not in theory, but in application, then um, we throw them out at our great peril, I think. And, and I am very concerned about that. This puts me in mind of the uh, New York Times 1619 project of the recent yes. Pulitzer Prize for Nicole Hannah-Jones and so on. And I want us to talk about that, but I want to ask you a different question first. I mean, in your account, you talk about the critical period being the Vietnam period. When our generation, you're in my generation now, nearing our dotage, but at the time, rabble-rousers and rebels against uh, uh, an unjust system turned away from the Enlightenment. That's what I thought I heard you say. Uh, Began to think uh, less of the Enlightenment. I mean, that's a very large statement. So I wanted you to unpack that a little bit, because I think it'll be a useful transition into talking about uh, the argument over the narrative of the American founding. Yes, I think our generation turned against the fairly rigid set of assumptions, beliefs, um, and practices that had developed over the last century or so, or maybe half century, I don't know, um, and that had laid down this very strict path for educated young people you know, to get through high school, get through college, go in career, get married, have kids. It was all laid out for us. Now, you also know that one of the things I'm very interested in is generational dynamics. Yes. Thanks to William Strauss and Neil Howe. And when you look at history from that point of view, what you find is that certain new generations always rebel against what their parents are saying, even if what their parents are saying happens to be true. Now, one of the most incredible moments in all that period happened right at the beginning in Berkeley in the fall of 1964, where the Berkeley revolt started over the issue of uh, campus political activism. And this young man from New York, I believe, Mario Savio, who briefly became the leader of it, got up and made a big speech. And he mentioned correctly that, that he had been in the Mississippi summer uh, the summer before, uh, helping to try to register black voters. Uh, and that was the project, of course, that led to the murder of the three civil rights workers. And he talked about the plight of uh, the black people in Mississippi who were denied rights and economic opportunity. And then, and you can find the speech online, he specifically compared the oppression of those people to the oppression he saw of Berkeley undergraduates. Now, these were young men and women who had grown up in an affluent society who were getting one of the greatest educations in the world for nothing, no tuition, you'd see system at that point, who who had each other, who had beautiful California weather, who who now were getting the birth control pill and all that meant. And he actually compared the rules and regulations of, of the university that they had to live with to the oppression faced by people in segregated Mississippi. And somehow, and if I could understand this, I'd feel that I was a very wise man. That actually resonated with his audience. And, and so uh, that is one of the most striking examples of the kind of thing I'm, I'm talking about. Uh, but then uh, all, all, the whole new left, though, was based on 
I, I guess the premise is the injustices of American society at that moment in time were uh, greater. Well, we had to focus on them and not, not, not what was good about it. Now, there were injustices. There were huge injustices in America at that time. There was still segregation in the South. There was still segregation in the North. Uh, we had made a lot of progress. I'd, I'd say the 20 or 30 years before 1964 were the years of greatest progress on civil rights, but we still had a long way to go. Women were not totally by any means, but largely relegated to the home. Their opportunities in the workplace were not as great. Uh, homosexuals were not accepted. Yes, that's all true. But let's look at the flip side of the coin. Economic inequality was nowhere near the problem in the mid-1960s than it is now. It it was virtually at an all-time low. Uh, The wealthiest among us were still paying, it was down from 90%, it fell from 90% in 1964, but they were still paying 70% marginal tax rate. That's a good thing on your uh, account. Oh, it certainly is. Uh, We desperately need it now. Now, I, uh, you are an economist, but uh, I... I had a great experience as a freshman in college in Economics 1, where the economics profession was focused almost obsessively on employment and keeping economic growth high. Uh, And all this was a quest which had been successful to avoid another depression. Uh, And it was focused on macroeconomics, interventions for the state. All that has changed now, too. So... um, uh, again, uh, this is what happens generationally. Uh, it is the tendency of generations to see what's wrong with their parents, what their parents did, and to ignore what was right because they take it for granted. And and the liberals uh, that you and I know knew and that I've spent my whole life with took largely took our parents' uh, achievements for granted. I think I have been too deeply involved personally in, in the democratic establishment. I mean, I had met a lot of leading political figures and, and through my father, and I, I identified with a lot of that. So, so for me, yeah, by 1968, after Tet, I had decided that the Vietnam War was a tremendous mistake, something that took me a while to come to. And that led to a lot of reevaluation about foreign policy. But for me, it did not lead to a total reevaluation, much less rejection of our political system our elites, yes, they had made a terrible mistake, a mistake which some of them, you know, you know, recognized. There was plenty of opposition to the Vietnam War among leading political figures, uh, just not quite enough. But for many okay. of our contemporaries, it went much further than that. Go ahead. So, well, um, uh, feminism, yeah. the women's movement, uh, empowerment of women, equality for women, uh, the civil rights movement, uh, massive transformation of social consciousness, of law, and of institutional practice. Um, the liberation, as has come more fully into fruition now in the 21st century, of homosexuals from the stigma and the repression. These are world historic transformations of modern society, of modern liberal post-enlightenment states uh, that are the fruit of the throwing off of the uh, old way of looking at the world that uh, occasioned the, the transformations of the 1960s. Um, a, would they have occurred without that uh, uh, throwing off of uh, the old way of looking at the world? Um, and B, don't you learn something about the inadequacies of the old way of looking at what the, the voices of the subaltern, the, the fact that, uh, you know, there are many narratives that are um, mutually inconsistent with one another, but that are available to us to to tell about uh, about our experience and whatnot. Why is the 1960s a bugaboo, a, a, a place where things start to go bad? Why isn't it uh, the dawn of a, of a new era, uh, fraught, difficult, uh, conflict-ridden, but nevertheless a lot better for most of humanity than what came before it? Okay, let me answer in, in a couple of parts. First of all, I, I very much disagree that the best parts of what you talked about, the valuable parts, the, the rights for minorities, for women, for homosexuals, are post-enlightenment. I think all of those things grow right out of the Enlightenment. 
it's true that when the Enlightenment began, and for some time, uh, those things were not part of it. Uh, although, again, the, the question of, of minority rights, of slavery, of Negro rights, th- that was hotly debated from the beginning b- because lots of people immediately saw all men are created equal. Well, what does that mean about black people? Well, well, some people answered, well, they're, they're different and inferior and they don't count, but others did not. I mean, from the very beginning, these things were debated. And again, the, the universal language in our Constitution, okay, the fact that our Constitution doesn't say white, doesn't say black, and also doesn't say man or woman, anywhere in the original Constitution, you will not find those words. The, 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 the framers' favorite word was person which is very interesting, and, and that's the word they always use. It was inevitable that that kind of language was going to lead to these questions being raised. So I, I don't regard those things as post-enlightenment. Um, now, the question, all oh right, I'll just jump to the last thing you said, that all these changes have made the mass of humanity better off. Well, they should have, and in many ways they could have, but I'm not so sure that in many ways they have over the last 50 years because of the simultaneous trend toward economic inequality, which has made everyone who is not part of the economic elite, has put everyone not part of the economic elite in a much more tenuous and struggling position and without economic rights and, and with a harder time in, in many cases, you know, affording a house, affording a place to live, affording an education. Uh, because now, yes, uh, universities are very welcoming places to, to women, uh, to non-whites, et cetera, provided they, like the whites, um, have to borrow tens of thousands of dollars to pay for them. And and that has huge problems as well. So I think a lot of different things have been happening and uh, that the uh, overall picture is mixed. And I also happen to think, I know this isn't the discussion you were expecting to have today, and I don't know that I really want to get into it, but I, I've blogged about this a good deal. The emphasis on the disadvantages of, of black people, of Hispanic people, of women in our society uh, which you can demonstrate quite easily statistically, particularly for minorities. Yes, they are disproportionately poor. They they are disproportionately in prison. Um, they're disproportionately less healthy. But all those problems that they have, tens of millions of white people now have as well. Not the same proportion of white people, no but lots and lots of white people. And for me, who has been a New Deal Democrat all my life, and still is proud to be one, uh, the great tragedy of our politics now is that poor white people and poor non-white people vote for different parties. And, and that has a long history, but, but it is very sad and it, it is tragic. For our country, so so that's the other perspective that I'm trying to introduce into. This is a Mark Lilla kind of uh, observation, isn't it? Uh, Absolutely, yes. Well, and I've had a couple of emails with him as well. uh, So, in um, Nicole Hannah Jones's uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning essay, uh, she starts off saying America's founding ideals were false when they were written. Uh, What's your response to that? That extraordinary claim. My response is that the ideals were true ideals. I, I think what she's saying is that they were false in their application. And to some extent, she's right. Obviously, they weren't being applied to the slaves. They also weren't being allowed uh, applied to lots of white people. And, and I'm very struck by this, uh, by, by the new project that I'm now in the middle of, uh, again, I was doing something else uh, that involved a lot of library research up until a few months ago. And now the libraries are shut down, so I couldn't do that research. So I picked up an idea I'd been kicking around for quite a while and started doing it, which is my second attempt at a history of the United States. And this one 
uh, is very straightforward. It's a political history, and it's based on one body of source material, namely the inaugural addresses and the um, State of the Union messages of all the presidents. And I have now gotten up to Andrew Jackson, and I, I'm really having a lot of fun with this. It's fascinating. Well, what really strikes me is that from the very beginning, they are all using universal democratic language and, and talking about the ultimate authority in our government is the people. They're all saying that. Well, not only could women not vote, not only did we have slaves, but at the beginning, lots of white men couldn't vote. There were property qualifications. But they don't talk about that, the presidents, at all. They are basing everything on this ideal of complete democracy. And, and this is the point that Nicole Anna Jones and people like that miss, I think. Um, when you keep stating and restating, interpreting those ideals, they are going to spread in their application. There is no way they will not, because the excluded people will hear it. And they will pick up on it, and they will say, quite rightly, what about me? And that began happening in the United States right from the beginning, and, and gradually it, it had an effect. Again, the other thing I would say to Nicole Hannah-Jones, and, and this is what is missing, and this is where I feel so fortunate to uh, that I, I did a sidetrack when I was in college and then in graduate school. I moved from American history to European history, and I stayed in European history for about 20 years, and now I've moved back. But it gives me more perspective. Uh, when you compare what was happening in the United States at that point in the late 18th century and what was happening elsewhere, the ideals are completely different. The, this ideal of freedom is not, in, in the 1770s, being applied anywhere else. And then in this, in, starting in 1789 in France, they tried to apply it there with uh, very mixed results. And it doesn't work out quite as they had hoped, although they do make sweeping changes. And then some of those ideas are around in, in England, but they're making very, very slow process, very, very slow progress. So the, the United States is ahead of the game, and everybody in the United States and elsewhere knows that the United States is holding out a different model for the world. Some people like it, some people don't. And as it turns out, that model does spread. So when you put this in the overall context of history, what emerges as different about the United States is not that they are not perfectly implementing those ideals of equality, which, no, they certainly were not. It's that they're making any attempt at all. And, and it is the start of something very big, not only for all Americans, but for the whole world. I'm, I'm personally very sympathetic to the line that you're taking, but I, but I want to try to uh, put myself in a position of... Uh, you know, a subaltern of, of somebody. Okay. Do you know? Do you know the philosopher Charles Mills and the book The Racial Contract? No reason why you should, but I wondered if you might. He's a Jamaican-born uh, political theorist, uh, and the book is a kind of uh, repudiation of the contractarian theory of uh, Kant and Rawls and. Uh, you know, uh, about, uh, about social, uh, uh, equity and liberalism and, and about the, uh, foundations of consent of the government and this kind of idea. And the argument that he develops is that, and, and it's very consonant with the rhetorical posture of Nicole Hannah Jones, ideals false when they were written, was that there was a kind of built into the very foundation of liberalism, denial of the humanity of the African, and the theories elaborated for uh, equality and rights of men were never really meant to apply to the African. The African was left out of that contractarian thing almost by the definition of who was a person which negated the African. Now, I'm saying all that not to endorse the theory, although yeah. it has had a wide influence in certain circles, but to say, put yourself in the position of a descendant of the slaves, Okay. Here I am, 21st century American, uh, an educated person, aware of what's going on in the world. Now, what am I to say about this 
uh, a magnificent flowering of, of Enlightenment ideals that becomes institutionalized in the late 18th century and the founding of the United States of America, and that even as it prosecutes this continued uh, uh, domination and expropriation, uh, you say, lays the seed, lays the foundation for eventual liberation. Forgive me if I'm a cynic. Forgive me if I don't see myself reflected in that account. Forgive me if I'm holding my wallet, not wanting to get robbed and have my pocket picked yet again uh, by um, this self-congratulatory account of, uh, of Western political culture. Can you understand why a reflective African-American or Latino or whatever might uh, take such a posture? And uh, what would you have to say to us? I can understand it, and I have to under, I have to try to understand it because it has happened all around us. And the, the 1619 Project is a very visible symbol of it. Now, you and I both know that no one who's been hanging around academia for the last 30 years is really surprised by anything in the 1619 Project. We've, we've been hearing it for some time. Uh, we were surprised to see it, given that prominence. Um, and, and we can talk about that. Um, well, what I would say to that is that it is quite understandable uh, in, in a way. I, I would also say, however, that the way white thinkers, white political leaders, and, and so on are being treated by that kind of scholarship where you stand depends on where you sit, strikes me as quite similar to the way that minorities have been treated by, non-whites have been treated by white racists over the centuries, namely, judging them by their worst representatives. Yes, you can find plenty of white thinkers in the 18th century, the 19th century, into the 20th century, who denied the humanity of black people and non-whites. Yes, those people were out there. You can also find uh, Christian white people, lost white people, uh, who denied the humanity of um, Jews from Eastern Europe, for instance. Well, they may not have denied their humanity, but they certainly didn't feel they could be full Americans. May I say, by the way, on a personal note, that, that I'm sure, okay, okay there, there are two personal reasons why I'm so dedicated to the idea of equality as I understand it. I think the, the first one is being a middle child, which is another story we won't go into. But the second one is that I happen to be half Jewish and half wasp and, and a real child of the mid-20th century in, in that respect. So uh, I always feel I, I don't have a tribe, and the, the idea of equality for all really appealed to me in those circumstances, and I, I can't let go of it. So um, the other... There is one other thing I want to say about the views of the people you are channeling. And I want to be very careful as to how I put that. We have been opening up our society and all its reaches to everyone. In, in theory, at least, and in law. Um, and it isn't perfectly equal by any means. There is a lot of economic privilege in our society, yes. And, in fact, that problem is getting worse. And, again, one reason it's getting worse is that the cost of higher education has increased so much. But in any case, competing in our society, our free society, is a very difficult process. And any individual who goes out in the world trying to make their fortune, has got to be prepared for a lot of ups and downs, and things aren't necessarily going to go the way they wanted. And there's, they're going to run into a lot of unfairness, and a lot of unfairness that has nothing to do with demographics. I, I have to say, again, reaching across the racial and gender divide, that I, I do think a lot of non-white males, if you will, have lost sight of this. There is an idea abroad in the land that, that white males are a club who always look out for each other, who always help each other at the expense of everybody else. 
Well, I've been a white male for nearly 73 years now, and, and I can assure you, no, that is not true. Uh, and and white, a lot of white males, the biggest problem they've ever had is with other white males. We're all in this competition. And, and you see, this is where these, these things come together. The, the competition has gotten harder. It's gotten more unfair in so many walks of life because money is so much more important now. And money, I think, is the real privilege in our society. What I can see is how easy it is for somebody who isn't a white male or a straight white male to say, oh, all my problems are because of my demographic. And some of them may be. But from where I'm sitting, no, not all of them. Uh, there's a lot of luck involved in what happens to you in life in, in, in many ways. Uh, the, the, the most capable people are not always rewarded, etc. And, and And if we could all face those facts together, we'd be, I think, a lot better off. So that's my answer there. Do you think that uh, being a white male, and, and <laughs> as you are, yes, uh, that the, that there might be um, something in this generation of young white men that will have an echoing effect across the decades in American politics of a reaction against or resentment of the state of affairs that you just characterized, which state of affairs is resources are limited and it's always tough trying to get to the top of whatever it is that you're doing. All the tougher when you're saddled with this presupposition, this assumption that you're somehow privileged and when uh, the deck is stacked against you left and right, your sensibilities are regarded as being unworthy of consideration. Uh, at your every move is uh, is uh, subject to uh, suspicion and and ridicule. Uh, your your motives are questioned. Your you know your moral standing and it's bigotry. I could hear the person saying, "It's an imputation to me in virtue of my category of all of this stuff that you're layering onto me." I'm as, I'm sensitive. I'm I'm caring. I'm compassionate. I, you know I'm decent. Why would you presume anything other than that? And oh by the way, I'm also competent often more competent than the person who I was passed over for in the name of some abstract, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not a white male, so I can't really give the speech, but I can see how the speech would go. Well, it's very interesting that you would ask me that question because as an Ivy League educated academic, uh, the white people I know don't say things like that. In fact, most of the white people I know are much more politically correct than I am. And, and, and closer to the mainstream liberal line than I am. However, I see a lot of evidence that, that yes, there are a lot of white people. I'm not sure about the generational aspect because young white people are way to the left of older white people at this point. That I've looked at generational voting data though, and that's an old story. Uh, it, it is absolutely true for all the recent generations that they have moved rightward as they got older. So that may happen again. But anyway, yeah, I think there's clearly a lot of feeling to that effect out there. And uh, I was just looking at some racial voting statistics, which were very depressing. Going back all the way into the 80s, I guess I looked, uh, with exit polls, and the white vote for my Democratic Party has been frozen in the low 40s for a long time. And, and that's a very depressing fact for me. Very depressing. Um, and, but, uh, obviously that I, I think the kind of resentment that you're talking about must have something to do with it. But, but again, you see, let, let me give an example, which I think is revealing, even though it applies only to a small minority of people. Uh, I read a book not too long ago and age is a terrible thing. So I can't remember the title, but, uh, the author is a woman who makes her living helping well-to-do people get their kids into college. Not the way the gentleman who has been in the news and is on his way to prison uh, yeah. did it, but but simply by coaching them, helping with their essays, and, yeah. and so on. Now, her clients are very privileged people, and yet there is such a shortage, really, relative to the demand of what we regard as top-quality education. I mean, I mean, the competition to go to Brown to go to Harvard is so fierce. 
that nobody feels safe, okay? They've all got to spend all this money, put in all this time, all this anxiety to try to get your kid into the good school. Again, very different from when you and I were young, um, where there were lots of good opportunities available. Uh, So obviously, yes, if they feel that somebody else has been let in because of affirmative action and without going through all that, uh, obviously they're going to resent it. Yeah. Sure. Uh, let, let me let me ask you about the... Uh, may, excuse me, Glenn. May I say one more thing? Of course, of course. A- again, we're going to have this problem as long as we have this winner-take-all economy. We're so focused on integrating the elite, okay? And, and yes, integrating the elite is very important, but it doesn't solve the problems of the lower half of the population who are all being left further and further behind. And until we can again which is what Roosevelt really did and what we did in the aftermath in the 50s and early 60s, persuade most of the country that they have a real chance at a decent life. We're going to be shot full of resentment and, and with good reason. Okay, go ahead. Well, no, let me just follow up on that for a minute. So do you think there's uh, no structural limitation on the ability to create uh, elite opportunity for a broad uh, spectrum of the population? Uh, by, by which I mean... Um, uh, so we have Brown, we have Harvard, uh, and they're elite. Now, why are they elite? Well, the quality of the faculty, the high test scores of the other students, the, um, you know, we integrate all these families who are very successful in American society, uh, the, you know, institutional connections that they've developed and whatnot. They're elite. So, you know, I'm, I'm an economist. So I'm thinking about scarcity and I'm thinking about a narrowing pyramid. Everybody can't be at the top layer. Everybody can't be the best, uh, uh, you know, computer scientist or the best uh, car- cardiac uh, surgeon or whatever. So, of course, uh, there's going to be a scramble for tenure at Brown. And, of course, a lot of people are going to get turned down for tenure. Many people, more people are going to apply for a position in my department uh, for a, a graduate program that I'm trying to run it uh, or whatever, because I'm trying to be the best in the world. So, I'm, I'm trying to grope my way toward the idea that not everybody can be above average. Not everybody can be in the top 10 percentile. I'm, I'm not sure what's being argued for here. Flattening? Is it that every uh, institution of higher education should be, quote, unquote, elite so that we don't have to choose? We don't have to ration? Uh, should, you know, college be free? Would that solve the problem? I really have my serious doubts about whether or not eliminating tuition would cause there to be an equal um, a process of equalizing of the whatever. I mean, um, so anyway, some people are writing good books in history and some people are writing rotten books in history. No, I mean, there are not so many good books. Doesn't somebody have to decide which are the good books and give that person tenure and et cetera? Do you see what I'm getting at? Yes. I mean, I was not talking about getting into Brown or to Harvard as a faculty member. I was talking about getting in as a student. Um, okay. okay. Now, now I do think that, um, let's see. We do have to reduce the economic rewards of getting into the top 1% if we want to make progress in society. Because they've become self-perpetuating and, and we have this elite, which is now, it, it's really, I think, an international aristocracy, which is becoming more powerful than any of our governments. And, and that's a really serious problem. Uh, and we have to, shall I say, reduce the penalties of not getting into the elite by providing a good life and a secure life to not only people who don't get into the Ivy League, but even people who don't go to college at all. Um, now, and we have to reduce the cost of higher education. Now, I'm beginning to think, uh, although I haven't studied this systematically, and I don't, I don't think I'm going to, although I was tempted to undertake this, I don't think I will. Uh, one way that we could significantly reduce the cost of higher education is, is to reduce the number of administrators and particularly top level administrators a lot. Uh, let me give you one example. Uh, I've been an activist 
as you also may know, remember from my autobiography about the finances of Harvard University. And, and I have a collection of their Form 990s. What is a Form 990? A Form 990 is the equivalent of a tax form for a nonprofit. And they have to list certain information. And among other things, they have to list in detail their highest paid employees. Okay. Now I'm not going to mention names, which I don't even remember. Harvard has 10 vice presidents. Okay. Only one of them is even remotely involved in the educational process at Harvard. And their compensation average is about $400,000 a year. And, and based on just a little quick investigation I was doing elsewhere, that isn't that unusual, as, as you might think. Now, and, and this is clearly a gigantic change since you and I were yeah. in college, and, and it's a contributing factor to the cost. How much of a contribution, I don't know. That would take a lot of detailed analysis. But that is one way that the uh, cost of higher education can be addressed. Now, again, well, what are uh, they doing? I'm just curious. What are these 10 vice presidents doing? Uh, they're doing alumni relations. They're, they're doing uh, one of them is the head endowment manager. I'd, I'd have to look at it again. I'll, I'll, I'll send you the document and you can look at yourself. Um, are they doing diversity? There is nobody who is there. There is nobody with diversity in the title, uh, although somebody might be involved in that. But a lot of it has to do with relations to, with the larger world. That That is clear. Yeah. Um, and, and by the way, um, we also talk about the biggest schools turning into hedge funds. And there's an amazing story on the front page of today's New York Times, which I recommend to you, about hospitals and hospital chains and, and how the leading hospital chains have also become hedge funds. And, and how, how they've got gigantic resources, uh, comparable to the leading universities. Actually. Let me just see if I get this. Uh, the, these are yeah. endowment funds that are being professionally invested by uh, really savvy Wall Street types who, in effect, operate as hedge funds by allocating the endowment here or there in yeah. order to get the highest return. And they're doing yeah. that badly in terms of generating return, and they're getting compensated yeah. accordingly. They're, they're not getting compensated according to the fact that they're doing it badly. I, I mean, my classmates and I have been campaigning about this now for about 15 years. And, uh, actually when we started doing this, uh, before the financial crisis, uh, every time I started talking to anybody about the financial, in the financial community about it, they said, you people are crazy. Those guys are brilliant and they deserve every cent they get. And it was true that at that point, they were earning very remarkable returns. But having been on this trail for so long, since the financial crisis, they haven't been. Since the financial crisis, Harvard would be richer if they had put the whole endowment in the S&P 500. And they would have saved all that money. Okay, But they're still doing it the same way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, Finally, since we've been going on for a while, David. um, Sure. Uh, there was a letter to the uh, New York Times uh, complaining about some of the historical inaccuracies in the 1619 Project essays, uh, signed by some distinguished historians like Sean Willens and Gordon Wood, and not signed by many other historians who might have signed it. Uh, what do you know about um, the, the the dialogue that went on among historians about about this work, and and do we in the public are we able to appreciate, you know, um, is, is what we see what we get? Are we, are we really getting an honest uh, accounting of what it is that the history profession, broadly speaking, thinks about that, about that work? I think that the 1619 Project does reflect the views of most historians of that subject under 50, although undoubtedly there are exceptions. Um, though that group of historians, which include several people whom I, I, I know via email, I don't think I've met any of them face to face, but I've been in touch with them on various things, including this. Um, they weren't all men. Uh, they, they were all old. And, and that's very revealing. Um, because there was a cohort of people roughly near in my age who kept the older form of history alive 
in major schools for a long time. And they tended to be the most popular teachers on the campus because of what they were teaching. Uh, and now they're retiring. And, and most of those people are retired. But it's not just them. I mean, since we're talking about this, I wanted to mention another article about the 1619 Project, which was written by a young historian named Leslie Harris, who was actually teaching at your alma mater at Northwestern. Northwestern University, yeah. I, yeah. I saw her, yeah. yeah. Okay. He revealed publicly that he was consulted by Nicole Hannah-Jones and her fact-checker about the project. David, I think he, Leslie Harris is a woman. Oh, gee, okay. Yeah, I uh, think so, but right. go ahead, go ahead. I'm, gu- I'm guilty of sexism, okay. <laughs> and she, 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 yeah, yeah, she was consulted, and she focused on the claim, which has now been diluted, but it's still there, that the revolutionaries in the American Revolution were fighting to a significant extent to maintain slavery. And she says that she told yeah. Nicole Hannah-Jones and the fact checker, I'm sorry, that just isn't true. Yeah. And, and again, despite her demographic credentials, which you just pointed out, they wouldn't listen and they kept it in there. And even now, yeah, they did make a change, but they, they changed it from to some of them were fighting for that reason to defend slavery. Now, I wrote a piece about that on my blog, which you've seen, and I went to the sources, which they then listed, and I couldn't find any evidence that anybody was really fighting in the American Revolution to preserve slavery. Um, there were slaveholders fighting for it, and they did want to preserve slavery, but was that why they were fighting? No. And in fact, I, I mean, a lot of this turns on Lord Dunmore's proclamation, the royal governor of Virginia, who... Uh, when the revolution had broken out, although before the declaration had been issued, uh, invited every slave uh, who, who was owned by uh, a revolutionary to desert and desert to the British army. Yeah. And, and, but but the, the thing about that is, uh, okay, that wasn't the policy objective. That was a tactic. And if a slave owner really was worried about keeping the slaves, uh, more than anything else at that moment, then the easy thing to do would be to write Lord Dunmer and say, okay, I get it. I'm yeah. through the revolution. I'm subserving to the crown. But, but anyway, that um, happened. Yeah. Excuse me. I just wanted to say I, I'm pretty convinced that uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones' real point with, you know, the founding ideals were false when they were written is not that the ideals were literally false, but rather that the people who espoused them were hypocrites. They did not believe those ideals. And that's why this uh, narrative that, uh, some or many of the founding generation were fighting against British uh, domination in order to uh, be able to continue with slavery is so appealing to her, namely that it affirms. I mean, she characterizes Monticello yeah. with Jefferson's as a forced labor camp. Monticello is a forced labor camp. What she has to say about Lincoln is that he invited in some African Americans to talk about sending the uh, freed slaves back to Africa. So, Lincoln gets reduced to a guy who wants to export the slaves, uh, which is an astounding maneuver in my mind. Uh, if, if I want to tell the account of Lincoln, this would be a footnote uh, in, in the, the back of the book, not something that I'd make into a major point. So I, I think the point is to say they didn't believe it. It didn't apply to the Africans. They thought of the Africans as subhuman, you know, um, and uh that's how I well, understand. Well, let me say, yes, I think that is what she's saying, but I think that's only partially accurate. And, and again, in what I'm about to say, I, I'm speaking as a historian, to, as a reporter, not to endorse any particular views anybody held at that time, okay? Yeah. Some of them, I think, did believe these ideals should apply to everybody, and, and I think you can demonstrate them. Some of them certainly did not. Some of them thought that in principle they applied, but sad to say, yes, and and this goes to the Lincoln point, there was grave doubt among many white Americans that even if you abolish slavery, that the white and black populations could live together on a footing of equality. I'm, I'm sorry that's the case. Um, I'm sorry that we have had so much trouble with that since we abolished slavery, but, but that was what they thought. Actually, 
one of the most amazing things that anybody who really wants to be educated on these subjects uh, can read, even today, is the long chapter in Tocqueville, Democracy in America, called On the Three Races That Inhabit the United States. I know it. Because he looks at the the status both of the Indians and of the slaves in a cold-blooded Enlightenment fashion. And, and he is extremely pessimistic uh, about both situations. But, but what he says is what a great many people thought at, at that time about the issues surrounding both of those groups. Uh, and uh, th- their beliefs were sincere, and in some ways they've been borne out. I, I'm sorry to say, and, and I, I, I don't, uh, so uh, they really were struggling with the problem, as Lincoln was, and trying to figure out what would work. But again, what I think is fascinating is, yes, Lincoln did have that lead, meeting with Frederick Douglass and the others and said it would be best for us all if we went back to Africa. Uh, and they very understandably said, like hell. Um, but he came around. He realized too, that wasn't going to happen, and that we were going to have to go in a different di- direction. And by the time he died, uh, he was talking about having some freed slaves vote, uh, particularly the ones who had fought for the Union Army. A- and again, uh, I mean, we really, that I think is the great legacy of the founders, that, that the document they wrote in the Constitution was written in such a colorblind fashion that you just couldn't sneak cast into it at some point down the road. It would be such a violation of the whole spirit of the document. Uh, and, and instead, in the Reconstruction Amendment, which, yes, weren't in force for a long time, and now the 15th Amendment is really under threat again, I'm sorry to say, uh, to some extent, um, the, the, they, they went in that, that direction. Excuse me. I just want to be clear. Yeah, because... because Yes, because of voter suppression, because of ways that the vote attempts to manipulate the vote so that fewer minorities will vote and the vote will come out in a particular way. Yes, that is happening. I mean, that, again, that, that has happened a lot more than we realize in American history and often in ways that have nothing to do with race. It's a great temptation in any partisan era, and we are yielding to it once again. Okay, well, I'm going to have to let that be the last word. This is David Kaiser I'm speaking with, uh, a professor of history, uh, most recently at uh, Naval War College, or did you say he's as a visitor at Williams, and before that at Carnegie Mellon, author of a memoir, A Life in History. Um, and I really appreciate you giving us some time, David. Thank you. Thank you, Glenn. I enjoyed this very much, and I appreciated it at least as much as you did. Thanks.